is indeed good to be here with you this morning and on this Mother's Day you may find yourself in several states of mind. Some for Mother's Day it's a celebratory day and others maybe it's not. Maybe you would like to be mother and or not or haven't had a good relationship with your own mother. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in we have one thing in common today. We were all born. We have all been born. And the sheer fact that we've all been born means we also share something in common. The simple humanity of this life. And that sometimes just being human means we will have struggles. So our passage today addresses this in, in a different kind of way. And I want to ask us the question as we begin to look at this passage in Romans 7, what does hope look like? If you try to put skin on hope, what would it look like? What does hope look like? And how do we find it? And how do we grab a hold of it in the middle of what is sometimes great pain and great suffering? We are surrounded by pain. Some of it we cause ourselves, and a lot of it is just the sheer fact that we are human and troubles happen. School shootings in our state are rampant and across the nation. You watch the news and you see trouble after trouble come across the screen. Sickness, death happens. We have loss and we have stress. The passage that we're going to look at today Come to, came to the first century Christians in a very similar time. They were having extreme suffering and persecution. And it was a time where hope may not have been very easy for them to find. Now to set the scene for where we are in John's vision, um, Revelation 7 stands sort of as a pause, a, um, an interlude, almost a break in the visions that John has been having right up to, and, and has been writing right up to Revelation 7. See, in Revelation 6, which we have not talked about in this series, but we see a, um, we read a list of seals being opened, bringing forth all types of destruction, conquest, famine, death, destruction, terror. In fact, when you get to the end of Re Revelation 7, I mean, Revelation 6, the scene is so bad after the sixth seal has been opened that John sees all of the elders saying, what can we do? Who can handle this? Who can stand against this? What hope do we have? Who can save? Who can stand with this? And so in the midst of this story of pain and destruction that John has been describing, it is no accident, I don't think, that... God provides a pause, a break in the suffering, a break in the rhythm of pain that people had been experiencing and that John had been envisioning. And one can only hear so much about suffering. And to the people of first century Jerusalem, for whom this letter was written to provide courage in the middle of their time of persecution and suffering, this would have been a breath of fresh air. It would have been like a salve to wounds, maybe a cold drink of water to thirsty throats. It would have been a break for them that what, to what felt like probably endless suffering and pain. And my guess is, 
if we are really, truly honest with ourselves today, we need this to be that for us as well. We need this to be an interlude in pain and suffering. We need Revelation 7 for us to be a word of encouragement, a place to find hope. We may not be facing death by sword like the first century Christians were, but the sheer fact that we are born and live on this earth means that we do have struggles. So let's let this passage be for us a message of hope as well as we dive into this together. We're looking this morning at Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17, and I'll read those. It says this, starting in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and waving palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat in noonday. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 7 is a very different picture than presented in, right before it in Revelation 6. Like the rest of Revelation, it's symbolic. It carries a lot of hidden meaning that probably made a lot more sense to the people who are reading it from which it, who is, it was intended to be to than it does to us. But... In the midst of all of this pain and suffering, we see hope. We see redemption. We see God's protection and God's renewal. And this passage reminds us and teaches us some very important lessons, I think, for our time today. And the first is this from Revelation 6 that I've alluded to already that suffering is everywhere, it's relentless. It shows no partiality. No one is exempt from its terror. And you have it in your life, and you have it in the life of people, the lives of people that you love, and you have it in the lives of those who are around you. You know, the people that John wrote this letter to were under extreme persecution. The, the ruler of the Roman Empire at that time was one of the most destructive rulers using control and torture and domination to maintain order and control in society. 
In our society today, we don't see this type of persecution struggle, but we do have trouble. We ache and we hurt and we live under different storms. We see friends die in car accidents, drug overdoses, diseases we can't stop, and by the desperation of suicide. And we don't like to talk about problems in church. We just don't. Sometimes church is the place where we feel that we need to pretty up our own messes and pretend that everything is just fine. But the truth is, is that suffering is all around us, and we have to open our eyes to see it in our own lives and to see it in the lives of those around us. We need to see past the presented issues on the outside, the things that we see, the addictions, the problems, the angry acting out, and we need to see through to the root of the problem, which is desperation and hopelessness. And it plagues many in our nation and in our very own community. Henry David Thoreau said this, the great masses of men and women live lives of quiet desperation. And it is to this desperation that Revelation 7 provides a promise of hope for the people in the first century and for us. And I think we have hope in two main things in this passage. And the first one is this. We see in Revelation 7 what eternity with God could look like. We see in Revelation 7 what eternity with God might look like. We see a multitude that no one can count from every tribe, every nation, every language, and all are standing before the Lamb worshiping Him. Everyone is waving palm branches and saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Verse 11 says, Even the angels fell to their knees in worship, saying, Amen, let it be so. Praise and wisdom and glory and strength and honor to our God forever. Church, this is our hope. This is our hope. This is the good news that in the end, all are falling before the Lord in worship. This is good news that eternity will be filled with what John continues to describe here. Verse 15 and 16, he says, we will serve all day and night. We're in the shelter of his presence. Never hunger, never thirst. Not be scorched by heat, not be scorched by the sun. That God will wipe away every tear. Now, let me just get you to think about something this morning. I think John is contrasting two very different scenes for the first century Christians. Think about the last passage you may have remembered about Jesus where people are waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna. When did that happen? I'm a youth minister. I'm accustomed to silence, but you can talk. When did that happen? Yes, triumphal entry. Yes, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. You saw people around him waving palm branches, praising him. And unlike that scene, the scene that John is describing here does not end the same way. We have not just the Jewish people in Jerusalem praising, but a multitude, every language, every tribe, every nation. We can't count them. We see not the end 
that we had in the triumphal entry of people leaving Jesus in his time of need, but we see loyal people praising and serving and living and being comforted and protected by the Lamb. John is contrasting this view that the, the Jews probably had in their mind of their story. We failed. We let him down. And we left. And he's contrasting that with what it's going to look like next time. It's the same message, just told in a different way. The Hebrew scriptures have told this message over and over. Isaiah, when you pass through the fire, when you pass through the waters, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. Psalms, God, wrap your presence around me, the psalmist calls out over and over. It's the same message, but it's told in a different way because it's going to be for everyone and it's going to be for forever. So we get a picture of what eternity with God could look like. But we also get something else, and this is where it gets hard to hear. Because we get a picture and a message of what the church should look like. We get a message here of what eternity with God could look like, but also what life with God here should look like for us, his people. We follow the lamb. We follow the leader our shepherd, our God, is the crucified lamb that we see described in this passage. So what does that mean for us exactly? And like I said, this is where it gets difficult because the heart of our call is to follow a lamb that was killed but overcame death. The heart of our message is that only through death do the new things come. Only through death does resurrection have a possibility. Only by dying do we truly live. Only by giving up do we actually gain. We have to remember that we are called to follow a man who was killed for turning the world upside down. The way things were done, Jesus flipped it on its head. And we continue in that process of turning the world upside down if we choose to follow and walk and follow Christ. And now you may be thinking, oh, how am I actually going to do anything to turn the world upside down? What can we do? Isn't that giving me too much credit as a person to actually do anything that could turn the world upside down? That's a little melodramatic, don't you think, Amy? No. God thought the best way to work here on this earth was through people. So here we are, and we got a lot of work to do. Following the lamb that is our shepherd means that we don't have to try to get to God anymore. He has come to us, and he has come to us, and he saves us. And as we live lives of openness and vulnerability to other people, it turns the world upside down. It doesn't look like what the world wants. Jesus was about downward mobility. You can't read the Bible and not come face to face with the fact that it's a command to put others above yourself. It's a call to give. It's a call to love others, to release others from debt, to release others through forgiveness. It's about taking care of others much more than it's about storing up stuff for us. So following Jesus means that we take what culture and society say are the right thing and the most important things, and we flip it. 
Society says take care of number one and focus on making money so you can be comfortable and happy for the rest of your life. And Jesus says, look out for other people and use the money that you have to help those who are in need around you. Society says surround yourself with people who are just like you, who make you feel comfortable and who make you able to reach your goals easier and do the things you want to in life. And Jesus' example was to surround himself with outcasts and fringe people and says we should do the same thing. We turn the world upside down when we love those people who were rejected by society. When you see the suffering, when you look at it, and see the suffering of somebody close to you, when you muster the courage to say, what is up? Where does it hurt? How can I help? We turn the world upside down. Because then no longer is enslavement and pain the ruler, but freedom. Freedom and community. The crucified lamb being our shepherd, our guide, means that we surrender to this rhythm of death and resurrection and death and resurrection over and over again. And sometimes it means that things within us have to die in order to be resurrected again. When we remove the structures that, whether physical or metaphorical, that are in the way of others coming to know the love and acceptance of Jesus, we turn the world upside down. When we use our words to heal and not to kill. When we welcome instead of exclude. When we love instead of hate. When we listen instead of judging or shaming. When we tell the truth about our struggles. When we refuse to present ourselves as something that we are not. When we do the hard work of opening up our very own brokenness to others and in the same way opening ourselves to God, we get a glimpse of this vision that John so beautifully pictured. A place where there is no hunger, no thirst. A place where all tears are wiped personally by the shepherd. John is saying this is our future, but hey, you people, this can be our present too, and it should be our presence. When we choose to mend and to stitch back together instead of breaking down or destroying. When we walk with others in the mess and we resist trying to give quick answers or fixes. We make space for Jesus in the middle. You know, a couple weeks ago, Rachel Held Evans, a prominent Christian writer who stood bravely, was a leader in standing with those in the margins, died at 37 of a sudden illness. And she has a, two small kids, a family, definitely feeling that loss, but the greater community lost a great voice then as well. And here's a quote from a, one of her books where she talks about church. The book is Searching for Sunday. She says this, at its best, the church functions much like a recovery group, a safe place where a bunch of struggling, imperfect people come together and speak difficult truths to one another. Sometimes the truth is that we have sinned as individuals. Sometimes the truth is that we have sinned corporately as a people. Sometimes the truth is that we're hurting because of another person's sin or because of forces beyond our control. 
And sometimes the truth is that we're hurting and we don't really even know why. You know, folks, we need people and we need places where we can tell the truth and have other people mirror and reflect that back to us. We need to hear the good truth and we need to hear the hard truth. We need space to share the messy parts and space to celebrate the beauty. And no, you do not have to spill your stuff to everyone that you meet in the hallway, but you do need somewhere and some people in which to do that. And if the church can't be part of being that place or helping others find that place, then what are we really here for? You know, I run with the group here at church, and I use that term loosely, but, you know, I show up, move in one direction, so that's, that's a success for me. Um, so yesterday I was running late, and I didn't tell anybody I was coming because I wasn't exactly sure I was coming myself until I pulled into the church parking lot. So the group had left, and I thought to myself, okay, you can go back home which I, don't give me too much credit. I've done that before. I've just turned around and gone back home. But I didn't yesterday. I stayed. And I said, okay, I've run by myself before. I'll just run by myself. But maybe I'll catch them. It was only a couple minutes. So I started in what I thought might be the right direction. Um, tried to think about where, where would they have gone? Would they have run through Tucker? No, we're bored with that. Would they have gone to campus? Maybe. I'll go this way. So I decided along the way that I was going to run to Green Springs Park, and if I didn't see anybody that I knew, I was just going to turn around and run back, partly because I can get to Green Springs Park from the church through the Greenway and all that, but beyond that, I can wander around downtown and not be able to figure out my way to get back here, so I knew that was safe. It took me a really long time. In fact, I've made it all the way to Green Springs Park and turned around and had started heading back. But I found my people. I found my running people. Now, could I have run without them? Could I have gone home and ran? I could have. Anybody who knows me knows that I wouldn't have, but I could have done that. I could, I could run by myself. I have many, many times. I do sometimes. But it's way better with people. It's just way better. And it was way better once I found them. So what I want you to hear in all of that is this. One, we have to show up to find our people. And sometimes we just have to keep going until we find them. But if you show up and you keep going, you will find your people. And your people will make it a whole lot easier to live this kind of life with. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, An Altar to the World, says this. It says, Jesus didn't leave his disciples with things to think about after he was gone. He gave them things to do. He said, eat the bread, drink the cup, remember, tell the stories, heal the sick, give the water, give the coat, give the clothes, be the shelter. And in all of that, you're going to share me. He said, do these things and not believe these things because Jesus knew that in the doing, we learn to trust. And in the doing, we learn to love. And in the doing, we believe. So we are called to do that as well. 
We are called to be the people who live the upside-down world that Jesus calls us to. We are called to have hope in Christ. We are called to know that this picture that John paints in Revelation 7 is coming. But we are also called to live and do and believe that it can be present here as well. We're called to, be, to have the hope and we're called to be the hope, people. So the question that I want to leave you with today is this. What are you called to be or to do today? What are we called to be, called to do today? Where can we offer the hope? What, what do we do that turns the world upside down? And if we think and we think, I don't know that I have an answer to that, then where do we need to adjust so that it looks more like what John has described here in Revelation 7? You know, we have prayer stations that are available if you want to use the next few minutes to write prayers for our ministers. We, you can certainly come and talk with me or any of the ministers who will be standing at the back. We have candles at the prayer station if you would like to just take a few minutes of solitude, of silence, and um, symbolically light a candle to, to symbol, symbolize your prayer. If you've taken Oakmont 101 or the Connecting Conversations class and you know that you want to unite with our church family in covenant and community, I would love to talk with you about that. And if you do not know the hope that is offered through Jesus Christ, I would love to talk with, that, with you about that as well. So our hymn this morning is going to be on the screen. It's a familiar tune, so let's stand.